The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. More than 60% of the population of Rwanda was born after the genocide in 1994. They feel its effects, however, but have little knowledge of what caused it to happen, says Dr. James Smith of Aegis Trust. The ravages of genocide tear families, communities, and societies apart. Smith adds it takes decades of reconciliation, peace building, and support to repair the damage done and constant vigilance to ensure it does not happen again. Central to ensuring it doesn't happen again is the need to help people who have no concept of peace or how to plan to start to envision a future. Dr. Smith says the victims of genocide spent years focused on the minutes ahead of them, relying on their wits to stay alive. Tomorrow, next week, next month never existed, so there was no need to plan or work toward a better future. Since 2008, Aegis Peacebuilding Education Program has reached thousands of young Rwandans, a peace education program that is changing attitudes and behavior among students and their communities. I invited Dr. James Smith to join me from Rwanda for a conversation that matters about working towards the prediction, prevention, and ultimate elimination of genocide. Dr. Smith, welcome. Thank you for having me. You know, in the part of the world that I'm in right now, we don't get much news about Rwanda post-genocide. What's it look like there from a societal and economic perspective right now? In the over two decades since I've been uh, either living in Rwanda or coming backwards and forwards here uh, many times uh, a year, uh, I, I've been astounded by the development, the economic development. Uh, in, in the aftermath of the genocide, this country was on its knees. Uh, quite literally, everything was destroyed. Uh, the, the infrastructure, the banking system, the legal system, uh, and of course, the people, the human capital uh, professionals were had either been murdered uh, or they'd fled because they'd been involved in committing the atrocities and uh, and so watching the growth and the rebirth of this country has been nothing really short of uh, a miracle. Uh, um, the capital city today is uh, is one of the cleanest in the in, in the continent. There's new buildings going up everywhere. They're holding international conferences. Uh, sometimes six, seven, eight thousand people at a time, uh, and. Um, but despite this huge development, you know, that there is still an immense amount of poverty in the rural areas. And the area that Aegis Trust is concerned about is that of the uh, you know, relations between uh, people in the community in Rwanda uh, and uh, the legacy that the genocide uh, has on that second generation, as you said in your in, in introduction, um, it's impossible for a country, you know, then of seven million people or nearly a million Tutsis to be murdered in the space of a hundred days. It, it really defies imagination. Um, and, and when I first came here, this um, 
in 2001 uh, at the invitation of the government of Rwanda and, and of survivors, actually, we're holding a conference here. Um, you know, what, what I was struck by back then was the, you know, the total, not just the total devastation, but the, 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 the sense among survivors, the, you know, the loneliness, the abandonment, the bewilderment, um, those that had, it, had emerged from this sort of fire of, of, of the genocide were, you know, they'd got, they were crushed in every sense. And um, there was others. I remember one survivor that told me, talked to me about um, how there wasn't a human emotion that was appropriate to respond to the, the scale of the loss um, to the extent that she said she'd never cried because she said you could, and this is somebody that had lost her entire family and witnessed her whole family being murdered um, and everything and everyone she knew around her. Um, she said you could cry all the rivers of Africa and it wouldn't express the sorrow that you feel. And, and so it was in that context, incidentally, when perpetrators at the time were still living among the survivors, unrepentant perpetrators, there were those that had been apprehended and hundreds of thousands were in jail. Um, but there were many more still at large because, you know, the, the, the legal system had been, you know, devastated it was difficult to um, just even contain that you know the prisons were overflowing uh, um, and then you know some perpetrators were, were released and not, it wasn't quite an amnesty but they'd done time they'd been convicted or confessed and, and you can imagine in that situation uh, the feelings in those communities of mistrust and how can you trust anybody ever again um, you know, and it was also the fact that there was still so little response to the genocide. I remember even 10 years after the killing had stopped, there were still hundreds, well, maybe even tens of thousands of women who were dying slowly of HIV, who'd been raped. And rape was you know, recognized in the international tribunals as a weapon of war. And still the debate among the international donors was whether, whether we should really give antiretrovirals to these women because won't it cause resentment among people in Rwanda or even in the region who have HIV who weren't victims of sexual uh, violence. And so in that context, to talk about reconciliation and, and rebuilding was just almost, um, you know, it was just almost offensive to, to, to do that. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. So, so how in that environment then do you start to create even a base level of trust uh, and also the rebuilding of the, the institutions and infrastructure that's needed to move forward? Mm. So uh, I, I remembered uh, a comment that was made to me by a Holocaust survivor. His name was Waldemar Ginsberg, who had said that what is not acknowledged can't be healed. And you know, the government had asked Aegis Trust if 
we would help to develop the genocide memorials, particularly the memorial in the capital city, Kigali. We were concerned, and I, I was concerned about how you know, memory of, of these atrocities can often be used to accuse the second generation. So children born of perpetrators would then inherit that blame, that collective guilt, which clearly wouldn't be healthy two or three generations later, it would cause division and, and, um, and resentment, which could lead to future violence. We've seen this in other parts of the world. And so, but remembering the, these words of this Holocaust survivor that, you know, what is not acknowledged can't be healed. He just agreed, he just trust agreed that we would help to develop the, the main genocide memorial in the capital city here in Kigali. It, it was, and still is, a burial place. Um, the city council needed somewhere to put the dead bodies to be crude about it. There, there were um, constantly finding shallow graves every time that there was any kind of development, a new house being built or a road, uh, another sh shallow grave would be found. And, uh, and so this hillside on the side of the capital city, Kigali, became a, a burial site of around a quarter of a million victims, uh, Tutsi victims of the genocide. And it was at that site that they started to put this building up, which we then helped and turned into the National Genocide Memorial. So this was the first step, acknowledgement, public acknowledgement. And you could sense over a period of, you know, a, a year or two, this was now 10 years after the genocide, that the anxiety that it would all be forgotten, therefore danger would happen again, was beginning to diminish. And that left, I think, then a, an opportunity to have difficult conversations about the future and about the kind of narratives, the kind of um, you know, stories that are told uh, about the genocide. And is it possible to curate stories that, that um, and, and around the genocide that, that could bring some sense of unity? This was a conversation that we had with our staff, uh, Rwandan staff, and particularly with survivors, because if they didn't have the ownership of this, it was never going to work. So um, there were some incredibly courageous um, survivors who had this foresight that they've got to build a safe place for their children. If there's constant anger and hatred, then there's a danger violence will return. So they set about to develop a, a peace education program um, and the way they did that was by looking at you know what were the attributes of people who rescued at the time of the genocide in other words they didn't go along with this whole ideology that the tutsis are vermin or the tutsis are, are a danger um, they resisted it many or some even risk their own lives. Hutus risk their own lives to, to rescue Tutsis. And so the, the big debate was, well, what were the characteristics of these individuals? And is it something that can be replicated? It was decided that, that they were people with big empathy. They thought for themselves. They were independent thinkers. They didn't listen to the propaganda in the media and the, the hatred that was out there. They had very strong values that led to personal responsibility to take action. And, and so this was this was created in a in, in a program, or at least a program was was designed to try and encourage these attributes, not in a preachy way, 
but just to engage people. Um, the big question that was asked was how do you do this in classrooms where there are children of perpetrators, children of survivors coming together? And you know, one group is going to be resistant to even know about it because they might feel guilt or blame or accusation. And the others are going to, the children of survivors will be looking at children of perpetrators thinking, well, you did this to our family and you can imagine the tension. And so the way in which that was broken down was by finding the stories of in these individuals and conveying them either through you know exhibitions or through simply just telling the stories and because we're in rwanda and africa the team said well we want to do it an african way we tell stories i always said well of course we all tell stories we all love stories but it was it it's it, it was this approach that was a sort of a homegrown approach i'll give you an example um there was a, a, a story of a 10-year-old girl. Um, her name was Grace. She was a Hutu girl. Rwandans don't need to be told she's a Hutu because she was fleeing with her family in June of 1994. And what this meant was the genocide was nearly over. Uh, it wasn't completely over, but many, several million Hutu, uh, the Hutu population fled Rwanda because they, they, they feared revenge from the Rwanda Patriotic Front that was liberating uh, Rwanda and actually stopped the genocide. Uh, it was largely a Tutsi um, rebel group, not entirely Tutsi, but it was, um, they, they feared revenge. So Grace is on the road with her grandparents and she hears a baby crying and goes to investigate. The, um, she discovers there's a, a small massacre of a family and a baby clinging onto the mother's breast she catches eyes with this dying mother, pleading with her to rescue her baby. The question at that point to the students or those that are engaging in this program is, well, what, what would you do? The grandmother is telling the 10-year-old to leave the cockroach alone. Tootsies were called cockroaches and snakes. Uh, and why was she saying that? Partly because she believed the, the propaganda, but partly because it would put them in danger. You rescue this Tootsie baby, you could all be killed by the militia that were still around. So this 10-year-old now has a dilemma. What does she do? And it leads to a debate. And now you see what happens is in that discussion is that it doesn't matter if your parents are in prison having committed genocide or you're a, a child of a survivor. You're all in the shoes of a 10-year-old thinking what you would do now. And it's about your own decision, your own humanity. Of course, there isn't really a right or wrong answer because you can either keep your own family safe or you can rescue the baby. And... It, it, you know, there isn't an absolute right or wrong. Um, uh, in the end, in, in reality, uh, Grace does rescue the baby. She takes it to a, a, a refugee camp in, in what was then Zaire, Democratic Republic of Congo uh, today, and she has to hide it. And she has to hide its identity because the militia that committed the genocide are in actively operating these camps. Um, she then gets disenfranchised by her own family for doing this and she makes her own way back eventually to Rwanda and she brings the she brings the baby up there was like a mother sister relationship and in a way you know what this story is about is just a little girl that stood in the face of this um, unbelievable horrific genocide that the international community couldn't stop and she saved a life and she brought the girl up uh, and they live together today in fact 
She called the baby Vanessa because nobody knew um, and nobody could ever find out what her real name was, uh, her original name. And she now works at the Genocide Memorial, Vanessa. And, and um, so it's a it's sort of a real life story, but it's a way of engaging um, in, a, in a very positive way. And there's much more to the peace education programs than that. It's all about trying to understand the pathway to violence and the pathway to um, peace. In fact, we drew from a Canadian um, psychologist called Irvin Staub. Um, he's uh, also a Holocaust survivor, as it happened, and he was wanting to understand the, um, the, the the psychology of perpetration. How is it that you know, the Holocaust happened or genocide happened? Uh, and we drew a lot from his work to teach now the that pathway to violence, not only the pathway to violence and genocide, but also that there is a, another pathway to peace as well. And this is all done in a very uh, um, interactive um, way with all sorts of different workshops. And, and it's going to be very powerful. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. So is is this a uh, fundamental element of the peace education uh, program that has been put together? It's basically, uh, uh, well, I, I, as I listen to that story, I, I think about you know one human being relating to another. Uh, our common humanity far outweighs our insignificant differences. And, and is that fundamental to being able to move forward and create a harmonious society? It absolutely, you've hit the nail on the head. It's about, even in the face of genocide and the aftermath of genocide, there is, when these debates happen around these stories and about what kind of communities we want to live in and what kind of future do we want, what we find is that there's a huge commonality um, about you know, rebuilding and living in peace and how do we do that and about taking personal responsibility um, and it's not about sweeping the past under the carpet and saying, well, that doesn't matter, it's in the past now. Actually, addressing the past, dealing with it, confronting it is really important part of it. But then it allows, uh, having dealt with that and talked about the truth, it allows say, this common purpose and to shape a new identity and a new sort of national identity going forward. And that is, for me, it's just unbelievable what has happened here in Rwanda. Um, it takes a lot of courage. I, mean, I often think that the, um, it, it takes a lot more strength to reach out in some sort of reconciliation and forgiveness than it does to dwell in, in hate and, and, and anger and resentment. One of my colleagues, uh, Freddie, uh, he goes to prison to, to meet the perpetrator who organized the murder of his own family. And he lost four of his little sisters, and he could hear them crying and the genocide being killed. He lost both of his parents. Um, I don't want to say, by the way, he did this easy. It was not easy. It took him many, many years before he could even begin to think about doing this. But he's determined that he wants to build a place of safety for his children. He knows the only way to do that is actually to try and understand I mean, I, you know, it's just mind-blowing. Uh, peace is not for the weak. I mean, this takes courage to go into prison and say, I'm going to try and understand the perpetrator that did this. Right. So how do you develop the faith as, uh, that, that this has a potential positive outcome? Because there's no guarantee that even when you are 
you know, had been on the receiving side and you decide, no, I'm going to be magnanimous. I'm going to reach out. I'm going to try and bridge that gap. There's no guarantee that it's going to be reciprocated on the other side. That is true. And there are perpetrators who um, remain um, unrepentant or they tell part of the story. And that's really difficult for survivors when somebody says, sort of generally that they're sorry because you know, th th their jail sentence might be halved. Uh, and then the survivor saying, well, what are you sorry for? You haven't even told me where you buried my family. That would be an apology. I'd like to know where they are because I need some closure. And so you get these uh, survivors then saying, well, how, can, how do you expect me to forgive when the perpetrator isn't really been clear what they're apologizing or they're sorry for. It's a kind of a sorry but. Uh, and uh, we all find that difficult when there's a sorry but. Uh, but when it's the murder or the mass murder of your family or community, it is really difficult. So yes, the, the, while there's been incredible progress and uh, huge, um, unbelievable stories of reconciliation and forgiveness, I don't want to suggest that it's easy. I don't want to suggest that it's it's um, complete. Um, there's a, a, a very, very long journey to go. And that's why we have to keep focused on building that you know, peace education and reinforcing it to the next generations. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. So the, the risk in not doing that, of course, is that the uh, hatreds continue to foment and will, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, surface again. And so despite the fact that it's it, hard work and not easy, uh, the consequences of not doing it uh, in the long run could be potentially worse. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's... There's a lot of stability here in Rwanda because of the leadership and the government and the security. But you know what may change in the future, and and, and if if the divisions remain uh, and those fractures remain, then yes, it could be manipulated. It could blow up. If there's an economic or political shock at some point in the future, uh, it's immensely important that resilience is built while there's a window of opportunity. Now, we've got to fix things while the sun's shining, and the sun's shining at the moment, and that means, when I say talk about resilience, it means that if there is hardship in the future, communities need to um, have the sort of it's behavioral resilience, so they don't blame and scapegoat others, uh, and they also need to have tools to uh, move forward and rebuild their communities, and that includes both sort of psychological tools, which is why among our pro within the program we also have sort of psychosocial support and trauma healing. Uh, it's, you can't talk about peace with people who have got anxiety and depression uh, and other sort of mental health problems that are a result of the genocide. And the other aspect that we're working on is about the economic well-being. Some of these communities are extremely poor, and again, you can't talk about peace with people who are hungry. Um, so um, there's another strand in which we're working, actually developing a, a, a social impact fund, which then invests into the community so they've got livelihoods uh, as, as well. So there's three strands, livelihoods, the peace education, the psychological support is the tools by which we 
um, observe does build you know, resilient communities. Incidentally, why is this very important? That if you can build peace in Rwanda, you can build peace anywhere. Uh, uh, and um, these tools of, sort of building resiliency um, in the way that I've described are going to be increasingly important in around the world because of climate change, which is going to lead to food insecurity. That will lead to migration. That's going to lead to conflict in neighboring communities and atrocities, which will become manipulated by other people and by political leaders. That will lead to more migration and refugees, which leads to more conflict. Uh, and one of the ways in which to bring about uh, sort of an adaptation to this pressure from climate is to ensure there's those, that, that education about how do we build peace, the psychological um, resiliency, and also the economic resiliency in those hotspots that are under pressure. And that's, that's the mission of Aegis going forward, is that the experience here in Rwanda will be applied increasingly to other countries at risk, and has been done actually successfully. Well, I applaud you for your work and I thank you for joining me today to give us a glimpse into what you're doing. Um, and I wish you great success as you move forward. Thanks for your time today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening and please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a subscriber. And thank you to Audlin Brown, BD Developments and Stem Cell Technologies for their support.